Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You are now entering the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, a show that uncovers what's fact, what's fake, and what's fun in the crazy world of Pseudo-Archaeology. Hello and welcome to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 118. I am your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and tonight... Army mateys, we are doing shipwrecking and treasure hunting on the podcast. Beware. So, check this out. I was invited on to the Life and Ruins podcast by Carlton Gover, and he started talking about really cool stuff he did in the underwater world with actually somebody who I'd worked with in the past. And of course I became instantly jealous as per usual. And I thought, how dare he do things that are cooler than what I do. And then I'm like, wait, I work on shipwrecks too. I work in the underwater world too. I could do this too. So then I was like, but how do I make shipwrecks work? on the pseudo-archaeology podcast, you know? And I'm like, uh, and I took a while and I thought about it, and then I'm like, wait, treasure hunting. Treasure hunting is totally pseudo-archaeology, right? Because it's full of just like BS narratives and there's like no science and it's all about the money and it's often based on some story that has no bearing in reality. So I'm like, sweet. Treasure hunting it is. And then I was like, but hold up. What about all the ghost ships and haunted ships and all that kind of stuff? So good God, my friends, a plethora of possibilities has opened up for us. Yes, yes. A plethora of possibilities and some alliteration, which is always good. So not only do I have some ideas for today, I'm like, man, I got ideas for a couple more. So I think I might do a couple more shows on famous ships and famous hauntings in these ships and these kind of things. And I think that'll work really well for us. So in terms of starting out here, I thought I would start by talking about one or two really famous ghost ships and the kind of real story behind them. And then I thought I'd go onward and talk about my own dealings and experiences in the treasure hunting world, like coming up against these kind of people and how they think and what they do. And then finally, talk about an underwater shipwreck project that I was a part of that I thought was done really, really well. I thought it was a great idea. I thought it was executed really smartly. It's a project I was on many, many years ago, but I think back to it every so often when I want an example of an archaeology 
project done right. Now, in terms of those themes, I'm not quite sure what's going to come first and second and third. Why don't we start out with famous haunted or ghost ships, right? Let's do some of those. And then I'll go onward, just depending on what seems to make more sense. So in terms of ghost ships, I've talked some about this before, but when I was a kid, I was totally into the TV show In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy, right? And Mr. Spock himself had the best voice for some of this. And I remember even from back then, and I'm watching this as reruns in the 80s, right? They largely came out in the 70s. But I remember the name, the Mary Celeste. And I'm like, what is that? You know, the Mary Celeste. I knew it was some sort of ghost ship that was cruising the oceans of the world. With no crew at all. Da-na-na-na. So I looked it up. And honestly, it's funny. I haven't thought about this stuff in so long that I didn't have the internet in like 1984. You know, so I looked up the Mary Celeste to get a good idea on the backstory. And I have to say, even though, of course, this show is all about how there is no such thing as ghosts. And I can't believe I have to say that. Yeah. There is no such thing as ghosts. So even though, you know, we're about debunking this stuff, I always love the backstory to these things. I like the true stories, right? The setup, because I find the history of these stories to be fascinating. So the real deal with the Mary Celeste is it's a ship that was found adrift near the Straits of Gibraltar, I believe, which is the entrance to the Mediterranean Sea from the Atlantic. And this is in 1872. So it's old, but not super, super ancient. And another ship comes up to the Mary Celeste. The Mary Celeste is floating there. Everything looks great. The sails look great. Like the whole, the boat is in perfect shape, but there's no crew at all. Where did they go? Did they go to the other side? Did the rapture come a little bit early? No. What they found is they looked closer to the ship. There was no crew, but there was also no lifeboat. And there was also no ship's log. So right there, you're like, oh, the crew abandoned ship. And of course, you can have all these side stories of like, but why did they abandon ship? Was there a haunting? Did they all go crazy? You know, or you can just be much more honest and be like, hey, there was a big storm and they thought the ship was about to sink. They all got on the lifeboat. And they all got out of there, obviously, like the captain takes the log and all that stuff. They obviously left in a rush. And then, of course, the lifeboat just got lost and was never found. And they all died. The end. But as always, I have to ruin a great story. You know, even with that said, though, I love the background. I love the background of like, oh, my God, think of how tense and terrible that storm must have been that the crew of the Mary Celeste was like. You guys, we have to abandon ship. We are about to topple over or sink, you know, and their only hope they thought was to abandon ship in a storm, in a lifeboat in 1872. Right. They they must have known that that choice was not giving them the greatest chances of living. So that true moment must have been very, very tense and awful. So we have that story, right? And so the reality of it is pretty, pretty obvious. Now, 
there's another one that comes up a lot that may be even more famous, which is the story of the Flying Dutchman. Yes, right, going straight back to Pirates of the Caribbean. But the Flying Dutchman is a real myth that's been told again and again, possibly it's possibly as old as like the 1600s, which would make a lot of sense. So the Flying Dutchman, the story with the Flying Dutchman, which, again, is a real story that's been told for hundreds of years. Is the idea that there's this ship that's trying to go around the Cape of Good Hope, right? That's the bottom of Africa. And of course, that area is known for storms and bad weather and this kind of thing. And the ship is caught in a storm and the captain because of his own narcissism and self-centered need to get across is going to continue to go through the storm at any cost. And of course, because of the captain's own narcissism, the ship is never heard from again. But in fact, some nights you may see a dull glow on the horizon. And that, my friends, is the ghost ship of the flying Dutchman. Right, that's the deal. And of course, this is a cautionary tale of don't be self-centered, don't be stupid when you're in a situation that can't be won. Be smart and get out of the storm. Right? So this cautionary tale is understandable and it's a fun, interesting myth. And again, the backstory of it being around for hundreds of years the Flying Dutchman, it surely has to do with like the Dutch East India Company and trade from those early times of the 1600s, 1700s in that in that time. And of course, Pirates of the Caribbean took this famous mythology and added it to their movie franchise. Do I have a problem with that? Hell no. I love Pirates of the Caribbean. And I know you're like, Kinkella, but you're the host of the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast. How, pray tell, can you enjoy Pirates of the Caribbean? Because it's a fun movie. It's not on the History Channel, right? I love Pirates of the Caribbean. And I have to say, if I have to vote, my favorite ride at Disneyland, absolutely Pirates of the Caribbean, which, as a side story, made me think it was smart to take my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter on that ride, and that, that wasn't a good call. And I'm a bad father. But with that said, again, great story. Interesting. Backstory is interesting. But is there really a flying Dutchman? Again, hey, everyone, say it with me. No, but a great story. Now, with that said, there are some very cool recent stories of shipwrecks being found that I swear you guys, I never thought they were going to be found. The first one on my list, the Endurance Shackleton's boat from the early 20th century. Now, this is in the early teens, like 1916, 17, in that realm of time, basically during World War I. Ernest Shackleton, famous expedition attempting to reach the South Pole. They never made it. The Endurance was locked in the ice and they had to abandon ship on the ice and take their lifeboats with them as sledges, basically, across the ice, carrying whatever food they had left. And in the famous story, surviving like the better part of three years, I believe, 
all the crew members survived. Nobody died. So it became a story of grit and survival. And it had nothing to do anymore about reaching the South Pole. It had to do with straight up survival. And the story of the crew of endurance is one of my favorite stories of all time. And again, it's honest. The stuff they did was amazing. They took one of their lifeboats on like a God, I, I want to say it was like 1600 miles. It was something crazy to Elephant Island, which is like this little island off the coast of, of Antarctica. Again, I, I hope I'm getting that right. I am getting right the miles upon miles upon hundreds of miles that they had to navigate in a small life raft in the Southern Ocean. Good God. So anyway, the endurance, of course, gets locked in the ice and sinks. Being a fan of the story over the years, I never thought they would find it. But I believe it was last year they found it in 10,000 feet of water off the coast of Antarctica. What an incredible, incredible archaeological find done by good research focused project and in good sense, right? Amazing find at 10,000 feet under the ocean. Also, other famous shipwrecks that have recently been found, the Erebus and the Terror. This is the opposite story of early explorations to the North Pole as part of the ill-fated Franklin expedition. Now, this happens in the 1840s, so earlier than Shackleton's boat journey, but the same idea, except on the flip side, ultimately everybody dies. So these two ships, same idea, locked in the, in the ice, sink. The crew is left on a small island in northern, northern Canada. And I never thought they were going to find them. And these were found about 10 years ago, kind of one after the other. Same idea, but in the north. So while we talk about silly overdone stories like the Mary Celeste, right? We have to realize that there are also some excellent stories of recent archaeological shipwreck finds that we can really be proud of and really learn from, and they can help us tell the backstory and the story of the past. With that said, let's come back and talk about a project done right. Hello, and welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 118. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and we have been talking about shipwrecks and treasure hunting. I thought I would take this section to talk about a shipwreck project that I worked on over 20 years ago at this point. I can't believe it was that long ago. I believe it was the summer of 1998. It was either 98 or 99. I think it was 98. And it was something that I thought was really done right in terms of learning about shipwrecks. And it's the opposite of army treasure, right? It was much more about let's find the ship. Let's document the ship. Let's tell the history of the ship and the story of the ship. And let's make it open in a way to the general public so they can learn too. And so what I want to tell you a bit about is the story of the Pomona, which was a passenger steamer that cruised up and down the California coast at the beginning of the previous century. So the Pomona was a ship that was built in 1888, and it was ultimately sunk in 1908. And it happened to sink at Fort Ross Cove in Northern California, home of very cold water, let me tell you. So what's the story of this? So the Pomona 
Which, again, you have to think this is the early 1900s. We don't have no Highway 101. There's no Highway 5. And there's barely cars. So people are taking these passenger steamers up and down the California coast just to get places, right? And it would just stop at the various ports. It would stop at San Diego and Los Angeles and, and Santa Barbara. And you get it, right? You know, San Francisco. And onwards, even up, I think, towards Seattle and that kind of thing. And it would just go up and down the coast ferrying people and the mail and you know, this these kinds of things cargo it, the ship itself i do remember a, a lot of the specs of it i believe it was 228 feet long and again a passenger steamer which means it had a huge boiler and ran on steam it had pistons and that kind of thing now in terms of its demise what happened was one stormy night of course in 1908 the ship was cruising just right off the coast and it hit a rock and it started to sink. And the captain was like, oh, no, let's turn towards the coast, hoping to ground the ship before it sank completely under the water. Happened to be right at Fort Ross Cove. And so it it steamed straight for the cove and then boom, it hit another rock. And then it that's where it sank. Luckily, it sank in only about 30 feet of water or so. And the sinking took days now that sounds like it's no big deal but at first imagine being on a ship that's like half sunk on a stone in sort of the entrance to a harbor in northern california which is barely a harbor at all in a storm those people must have been really really scared so they had to take the lifeboats right off and make it into the cove from the ship itself in a storm do you want to surf a lifeboat to the shore I don't, but they did. And ultimately, funnily enough, Fort Ross is a Russian fort that had been built, of course, boy, what the better part of a, I mean, many, many decades before at that point, what better part of a hundred years ago before anyway, in the 1800s. And there was, I believe a caretaker there, or they were able to get help and, and there you go. So in the intervening years, the Pomona had been lost. Basically, nobody thought about it anymore. Every so often, artifacts from the Pomona would wash up on the beach. But in the 90s, the state parks decided to make a map of it, kind of refined it. There was a very, very basic map of almost nothing that I remember we had. Uh, but our job was to refine the Pomona, make a much better map. And then ultimately, the project was going to connect the Pomona to what was now Fort Ross State Historic Park. So really, they were extending the park into the water right beyond the fort itself. And it's just a great idea, right, by California State Parks. It was run, I remember, by Charlie Beaker, who is from Indiana University. And he had his students and John Foster, who was part of California State Parks. And these guys had worked together on previous projects. They'd worked in the Dominican Republic, which is where Carlton worked, the co-host of the Life and Ruins podcast. And so um, I worked with these guys for about two weeks. We stayed at a little little Boy Scout camp right there. Very, very basic accommodations. I remember staying in just this little wooden, I wouldn't even call it a cabin or room as much as a storage unit. And all that was in there was the remains of a bed, but it was just the metal parts, like just the springs, like just the box springs, but just the metal. And I remember all I did is I had a sleeping bag and I just rolled it out on top of the metal springs and it kind of oddly worked. 
So we stayed there. We did three dives a day. I remember that the first two or three days we had to refine the ship. And it was very difficult because when you're diving in a place like that, even though it's only 30 feet, it's cold. We were wearing seven and seven millimeter wetsuits, which is about as thick as you can go before a dry suit. And we were freezing even in that and diving down, even though it's 30 feet deep, your visibility is what, like eight feet. I don't know, maybe 10 feet on a good day. And so you basically have to hit the wreckage perfect in order to know you're there. So it took us a few dives of finding nothing. But I remember those dives, how it would go would be you'd jump off the Zodiac. We had like a little rubber boat. You'd go down. There would be darkness for a while where all you could see were your various dials that on your scuba equipment, you know, your dive watch, your computer, whatever, all you could see, because if you can only see eight feet and it's 30 feet deep, that middle part, when you're at like 20 feet deep or so, you can't see the bottom, you can't see the top. So you would just float through darkness. And then all of a sudden the ocean bottom would be there. Like you're, whoa, you know, and then you would cruise around looking for the ship. When we finally found it, it just looked like, Hey, why did a bunch of people just drop a bunch of metal here? Like, did people dump metal here? Because you have to realize the ship had already been there for a hundred years. So it had been hammered by the waves in the ocean for a hundred years. So sunken ships for the most part are not how you guys think. They're not all in one piece. Stuff like the Titanic makes us think they're all like in one piece and you can like cruise through the corridors or something. And for the most part, you can't. They have just been destroyed. They are opened up. Like think of an orange just opening up and having like the slices all over the place. That's what it's like. And the ship was so big, you could get lost on the ship. You would just be like, ah, I'm swimming through metal parts. What is this? I don't know. You know, just metal bits and bobs all across the sea floor. But after we found it, we then started to map the remains of the ship. We made a datum at one spot on the ship on the drivetrain. The drivetrain was still there. It was like 100 feet long, I think. And we just started mapping using tape measures, mapping away from it and mapping the major chunks of the ship that were still there. I remember that my job was the engine. I did a lot uh, with the engine with my dive buddy. So I remember mapping like one of the pistons that was still there which are super, super huge. The pistons in our own cars, like the connecting rods, if you guys know auto mechanics, a connecting rod's only like four inches long or whatever it is, you know, it's very small. The connecting rod on a passenger steamship is like four feet long. You know, so these are huge parts. Mapping the boiler, that kind of stuff. So I was in the engine room area, which is of course now open and just pieces all over the place. Mapping something like that in a surge too, because the water's always moving back and forth. So what me and my dive buddy would do is we would hold on to each other, let the surge swoosh us towards, let's say we have to map the boiler. I would hold the measuring tape. He would hold the underwater writing paper and we would let the ocean move us towards. Let's say again, it's the boiler. Once we got to the boiler, I would have the measuring tape ready. I would put it on the boiler as we moved by the boiler and then with my thumb, I could tell how long that part was. And I would show it to him right at his mask. I'd be like 41 centimeters or whatever it was. Right. And he would write it down. And then we would wait for the surge to pick us up again. And we'd take the second measurement. That's how slow and difficult underwater archaeology is. 
we would see people on the ship like holding on to parts just to try and make sure the surge wouldn't take them away again the surge will bring you back but it's very again very very difficult to stay at a spot you kind of have to make friends with the surge and just let it take you backwards and forwards and do what you can as you are moving by so i'll always remember that and being cold the whole time too ultimately after about a week and a half we had a decent map so we would dive there were three dives total and the more experienced divers would go twice and the less experienced would tend to go once on that group I was much less experienced. So I had much more archaeology experience than most of them, but much less diving. So it was fun for me. I learned a lot about diving. And ultimately, we made this map and we brought up a couple pieces of the ship. Now, these were just things like pipes and that kind of stuff that could be set up at Fort Ross above. So Fort Ross was like on the bluffs above the cove where we were diving. And so people at Fort Ross tourists could look out and then be standing where we'd have this little display that talked about the Pomona. I thought it was a really great idea. And one of the last things we did was put a floater on the bow and the stern of the ship. So these two white floaters. So you could look out and see where the Pomona lay, right? You could see these two floaters. So your mind could be like, oh, that's where the ship is. I just thought it was a great idea. Like, what a great archaeology project to map this ship in, to see, sort of check and see the status of it, to add it to a state park that was already there and give this other aspect. So now it's like, hey, come to Fort Ross to learn about Russian traders, but also learn about early maritime history of California at the time and learn about shipwrecks and this kind of thing. So it was just a great project. I really have respect for it. And I learned about scuba. It sort of kept me in the game. I, after that, started taking more advanced scuba classes. At that point, I believe I only had my initial open water certification, but I knew like, OK, if I want to be an underwater archaeologist, I got to up my game. I got to like get these advanced certifications. I ultimately did get my dive master certification, but that was years and years later. I do think that working on that project, though, kind of spurred me forward and, of course, helped me in my research on cenotes that would come a bit after that. So that's how to do a project right Notice I never said, and then we brought up the treasure, right? Notice I didn't say, oh, because it was haunted. You know, it has its own fascinating story. You don't need ghosts. And with that, when we come back, how to deal with the treasure hunter world. Hello and welcome back to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, episode 118. And we are talking about shipwrecks and treasure hunting. And so with this last bit, what to do in terms of dealing with the treasure hunter world and all that kind of stuff, man, this stuff, I will say as the decades go by, it does get better, but it's still a pain. And what do I mean by that? There are people out there, their focus is on finding treasure. And Unfortunately, what that means, the complete sentence is their focus is on 
totally destroying the archaeology site in the vain, self-centered, narcissistic hope of trying to find some gold or something, which they won't find because the chances are terrible. So that's how that world goes. Unfortunately, they have brutalized, you know, hundreds of shipwrecks throughout the decades. These guys go out there, they get they get weird money or from places that will sort of bankroll them and they go looking for these vaguely famous army treasure places and it's just a big disaster all around. It's really sad. Their attitude is that disgusting finders keepers attitude you know oh i just i find it and it's mine because look i put the money into looking for it i like to think about look if if i'm giving a lecture and my students are there and they listen to me and then they leave and one of you leaves your cell phone is that mine now i found it finders keepers it's my cell phone no it's your cell phone right It's the same thing with all this treasure hunting crap, right? It's not yours to take. It's a very self-centered way of looking at the world. And it just, it drives me nuts. But it feels almost weird because we have heard this trope of treasure hunting for so long. And it's just a bad thing to do, right? Just don't do it. And they sneaky it by bringing up things like salvage, right? I have a salvage permit for this. But they really don't. One thing that really helps is what's called the Abandoned Shipwrecked Act of 1987. And so the United States came up with this law that basically says, look, all shipwrecks found in the United States, found in rivers and found, I believe it's up to three miles out from the coast. That stuff changes over time, but I I think that's what it is. Hey, look, they're owned by the U.S. government, which means they're owned by the American people which means you can't just go and quote unquote salvage a ship, you know, because it's an archaeological site. It's a historic site. You don't get to break it and mess with it and destroy it. It has to be permitted by the United States government. And that's a great thing. I love the Abandoned Shipwrecked Act of 1987, because before that, you just have these cowboy people who are out there just trying to find stuff for themselves. Now, I will say another great thing about the United States is the United States military never gives up a ship, right? And what that means is if there's an aircraft carrier that's sunk in the Pacific, you know, from World War II or this kind of thing, it is still owned by the United States, right? So foreign entities don't get to dig in it. That is a United States ship and the U.S. never gives up a ship. Now, on the flip side, you know, I think as we think about that, we feel good about that as Americans. We're like, yeah, damn straight. That's our ship. Now, we have to think of it the other way, though, too, because if France has a boat that is sunk in United States waters, we got to go like, all right, that's the property of France. You know, you know what I'm saying? Works both ways. But I really like this idea, though, of also treating shipwrecks as archaeological resources or historic resources that they have a story to tell. And often they are tombs on top of it. You know, there are dead people in there. So it's not really right just to go trifling through it in order to try and find our meet the blooms, you know. So good for the abandoned shipwreck deck. Now, 
in my travels in this world of stuff, I do come across these people sometimes, these kind of shipwreck hunters. And it doesn't help at all that the media totally boosts these guys, you know, to try and make them look like some pseudo culture hero, which they're not. And so many of them doubled down on that crap, too. This, again, finders keepers attitude, always bad. What I find as I come across these people, I do try and treat them with a light touch because there's no way I'm going to change their view. You know, I can't sit there and, and just give my professory speech and be like, well, you know, guys, you see, when you're looking for treasure, that's really wrong. I mean, the abandoned shipwreck act, they're going to be like, shut up, dude. But I do try and treat them with a light but firm touch, meaning I'll say something like, you know, you shouldn't really be doing that. It's really uncool. It destroys the patrimony of history for all of us. Why don't you help out on a project? Why don't you work together with archaeologists? So I will bring that stuff up. Again, it almost never works. But I do try and give them an out of like, hey, you know, you could you could help instead of hinder. I do. I do respect your interest in this world. Right. These kind of things. And often if people are sort of curious about this world, maybe they, they don't want to be treasure hunters. They find treasure hunting interesting because we all do on the surface. I do tend to recommend two books that I think are really, really cool. One is called the HMS Fowey Lost and Found. It's by these guys, Scourneck and Fisher. And I'll put a link below to, to their book. I, I want to say it came out like 10 years ago or so, but it traces their experience in terms of finding this ship, the HMS Fowey, identifying the ship itself, which can be really, really hard and dealing with it in terms of the archaeology, in terms of what to do with the site, in terms of the artifacts themselves. We want to realize that if we bring up metal artifacts from a ship, they instantly start to corrode. I mean, iron is one of the worst things. That's why in places like Florida, you'll find like a corroded, sad cannon in front of some weird restaurant, you know, because somebody brought it up 40 years ago and they had no idea how to deal with it after. They just went, err, me cannon, you know, and brought it up to show everyone, look, I found a cannon. And then, then they did nothing to preserve it. So it's just a rusty, sad hulk. And that happens again and again in that world. The same thing is true of cannonballs or other metal parts of ships. As soon as you bring them out of the salt water, they just start to corrode. They just it's sad and very difficult, actually, to keep it from not corroding once you bring it up. Very, very difficult in the underwater archaeology world to deal with that stuff. Anyway, the, the book, the HMS Fowley book is really great because it goes all the way through what their journey was like and behind the scenes trying to deal with it. I think it's really great. The other one is Rachel Lance's In the Waves, and she talks about a Civil War boat that has actually been raised. It's a submarine. It's, it's one of the earliest submarines, right? And same thing, her history of working on this project, dealing with it, dealing with kind of outsiders, the, the trials and travails of studying something like this. Really, really great. I actually came across Rachel Lance's work because I believe she was a member of the Explorers Club, which I am too. And she gave a presentation and I was like, wow, this is a really interesting presentation. And I recommend that book right and left. So between those two, it really gives you a good feeling for good ways to deal with modern shipwrecks 
and the awesome stories that go with it. Both of those could be made into movies in a in a second. Both great, great books. I think the only way out of the world of the army treasure, it's all for me, you know, is is the old cliche of just teaching the public these kind of things, showing them good stories, you know, showing them how shipwrecks can be treated well, showing them that the idea of treasure is really not that exciting because I can go look at this bar of gold and you go, oh, my God, a bar of gold. And then a minute later, I go, look, I found gold. And you're like, mm hmm. And then three minutes later, I'm like, no, 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 there's gold. You're like, eh. and really the the historic story is that much better. So you don't even have to sit there and go tisk tisk. How dare you want treasure? All you have to do is on the flip side, just go look at this awesome story I have. Look at this awesome story of the past. Look at this crazy thing that I've reconstructed. Isn't that cool? And that will sell so much better than just, look at me treasure. And with that, I think we're good. And I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. Please like and subscribe wherever you like and subscribe. And if you have questions for me, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, feel free to reach out using the links below or go to my YouTube channel, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology. See you guys next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.